Hello, once again, welcome to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk, and the sun is shining. And I'm your co-host, Jax Nephlin, and the ice is slippery. As you could maybe guess, if you're into somewhat niche movies, uh, we're talking about The Shadow from 1994 and also The Phantom from 1996. This is the final entry in our comic bracket What If series. And it's actually really fortuitous that we're recording these because these are both very much in the vein of The Mummy, which is exactly 20 years old today. Yay! Not today for you when you're listening to this on Friday or whenever in the future, but pretend that time is a flat circle. As soon as I realized that neither of these were going to make it onto the bracket, I wanted to make sure that we had an episode to talk about them. Partially because I watched both of these films as a young child. We know, we've met you. Partially because they are very interesting in the way they came to be in general. In the late 80s, early 90s, you had the huge success of the Tim Burton Batman films. And Hollywood, rather than it's like, oh... Viewing audiences want more superheroes. Let's give them more superheroes. They're like, oh, viewing audiences want 1930s pulp detectives. Let's give them more of those. (laughs) We received The Rocketeer, The Shadow, The Phantom, Dick Tracy. Darkman. None of which did as well as Batman, and no one could figure it out. So like, oh, I guess the fad is dead, and we wouldn't get superhero films till the tail end of the 90s, starting with Blade. Imagine if the Phantom or the Shadow set the tone for superhero films instead of Blade. On one hand, we'd be getting more like pulp adventure stuff, which I love. I wish we got more of it. We probably would have gotten a Doctor Strange movie sooner. But on the other hand, there's also lots of problematic baggage associated with pulp orientalism and all that icky stuff. We're probably not going to get into it too much here because it's kind of out of our lane. Both these movies have a lot of like white men in Asia narratives. I would say that The Phantom is probably a little bit better about it than The Shadow is, but not by much. To judge that better, let's get into these movies. So, The Shadow from 1994 is about a former World War I pilot after the war, rather than go home, becomes a brutal warlord in Mongolia. Was that his backstory? Yes. Okay, I did not pick up on that. Carry on. It's not very apparent from the actual film itself. This is more extra textual information that I'm bringing in. Okay, sure. So, Mongolia. Yeah. Becomes a warlord in Mongolia, eventually a powerful spiritualist medium psychic whatever decides i'm going to reform you takes him under his wing teaches him how to be a psychic like telepathy how to cloud the minds of men and like turn invisible jedi mind trick that sort of thing he then goes back to his homeland the wretched hive of scum and villainy that is new york city and becomes the shadow a masked vigilante who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men the last heir of genghis khan shiwan khan comes to New York in order to finish the job and conquer the other half of the world. And they butt heads, and eventually the shadow triumphs over... Honestly, that brief summary is more wacky than this movie is. This movie has many good qualities, but I think the thing that bogs it down is that it's taking itself seriously, and this should have gone harder. This Mm. should have been more bonkers, and it was, in fact, less bonkers. I would also say that's probably one of the biggest problems with the film is it just it takes itself too seriously and to be fair they were dealing with a very popular franchise not at the time but the shadow is incredibly influential for all of comics i mean the shadow is one of the influences for batman yeah i've heard of him (laughs) yeah the shadow kind of set a lot of the tone for masked vigilantes 
the radio show The Shadow was very popular. It was The Shadow was voiced by Orson Welles. Right. I can understand wanting to do this franchise justice, but I don't think in 1994 you can be too serious with, I'm a psychic crime fighter, I'm going to Jedi mind trick you, and oh, there's an invisible building that is important to the plot. And the son of Genghis Khan, who is also a wizard, is going to try to take over New York with an atom bomb that Tim Curry built. Yes. Tim Curry and hypnotized Sir Ian McKellen. Yep. Also the shadow is Alec Baldwin. Yes. Which, honestly... He does a fantastic job here. There are some lines that he delivers that literally, I think Alan Baldwin was the only person on the planet who could deliver. Like at one point, Margot Lane is complimenting the Shadow's alter ego, Lamont Cranston. It's like, you speak Chinese. Only Mandarin. Alec Baldwin is an odd choice. So Alec Baldwin is functionally Bruce Wayne in this movie. Yes. Alec Baldwin as Bruce Wayne is a really odd casting choice, and not one that is bad per se, but is weird. I don't think it was weird at the time. I mostly think that viewed in hindsight from uh, 25 years later, right. it's very weird considering the trajectory of Alec Baldwin's career. Right, like, I can't not see him arguing with Liz Lemon whenever he talks. Exactly. Yeah, like, he's a pretty competent actor and he manages to juggle the inner darkness fairly well about as well as the script was going to let him do so yeah that's one of the compelling things about this film is that the hero who we're supposed to be rooting for has this very dark past he was a mongolian warlord he destroyed villages when siwan kong first shows up in new york he's trying to recruit him he's like join me we can do this together i've heard about you i'm a fan i know who you really are yinko i'm a great admirer yeah and when we're introduced to the shadow in new york appears out of the shadows cackling and terrifies some guys with his invisibility and threatens to shove one of them off a bridge and gives this guy a ring and is like when you hear one of my agents say the sun is shining you will respond but the ice is slippery and it's fairly sinister i could easily see that being a thing that a villain does there's this maniacal edge to the shadow and i think they balance it really well with trying to make him heroic part of that was mostly an introduction for this specific iteration of the shadow the director really wanted to get at who knows what evil looks in the hearts of men well how does the shadow know is it just because it's psychic or is there something else going on was he one of those men who had the shadow within his heart? Mm-hmm. And I think that was an interesting direction to go, especially in 1994. I feel like it's a little underdeveloped. We gave you a summary of that he goes from World War One pilot to Mongolian warlord to reform to the shadow persona. That's a five-minute stretch. It is functionally a montage. Yeah. The first two scenes in the film setting up him being a Mongolian warlord and then the reformation by this spiritual leader then it's this screen crawl letting you know seven years have passed and he's moved to new york and he's mastered tolku's teachings this was the first time i'd ever seen those two scenes the only time i ever saw this movie is when it was on television and i'm pretty sure they just cut directly to the mobsters trying to drop dr tam into the river 
Mm-hmm. Which honestly, I think is a better place to start. Yes. That opening bit is interesting, and I want to know more about it, but because it goes by so fast, it feels underdeveloped. Yes. Whereas him starting in New York as this shadow is just a really good, like, okay, we're, we're jumping in now. Mm-hmm. I was showing you a trailer for this film, and it had a, a bunch of clips from those first two scenes. I'm like, I don't remember that part of the movie at all. What happened? <laughs> also, if you cut those two scenes, you get less of the uncomfortable white men in Asia aspect. Yes. It doesn't fix it, but it is occulted a bit. Speaking of occult, this movie has some really good psychic stuff and really good occult stuff, and I really liked it. Yeah, if you want, like, a one-sentence, high-concept idea of what the shadow is, think Batman meets Doctor Strange. But unlike Doctor Strange from... They don't overdo it with the effects. They just do a lot of the psychic stuff via camera angles and camera cuts. Like... There's a bit where the shadow is in a tank that's filling with water, and he just sort of thinks at Margot, and we just cut to her going, <gasps> It's a good way to show what's going on without needing flashy visuals, which is probably good for your budget. There's also this really affecting lighting effect that they use to denote when the shadow is trying to like implant ideas into other people's heads. Alec Baldwin kind of leans back from the scene and he's just covered in shadow and his eyes get sort of glassy and he just starts speaking. You're not going to pay any attention to these reports of the shadow. Ignore them entirely. There is no shadow. No, there is no shadow. If there were, I'd be Eleanor Roosevelt. It reminds me a lot of the Universal Horror Dracula when he's doing his mesmerism stuff where they have the eye-based effect. While we are praising their use of their budget, there wasn't necessarily a lot of budget to go around. There are some, some scenes that don't always uh, always hold up super well with the CGI. There's a magic dagger that has a face on it that bites you if you don't have a strong enough will or something. And while I can understand it being scary on a somewhat grainy TV as a kid, it was not meant to be viewed in HD. <laughs> Oh yeah, that dagger scared the crap out of me as a small child. <laughs> the dagger didn't bother me so much. I'm like, yeah, it's it's CG that has not aged very well, but I've seen this movie so many times. That's just how it always looked. For me, I think the biggest visual failure for this film is there are some really bad composited shots in this. I think in particular, there's one where Margot Lane is talking with her father, Dr. Lane, And she's like in the foreground laying on a couch and then he's in the background at his desk uh, kind of looking up and responding to her on occasion. And rather than do shot reverse shot that would have been totally fine and worked okay, they decided to composite the shot so that they were both in focus at the same time and it looks very bad. Mm -hmm. One bit that did it pretty well, uh, our antagonist Shuan Khan is doing some sort of magic stuff. Some hypnotism thing is happening. And doing his mudras and then the tapestry in front of him, CGI unravels and becomes this cool spiraling abstract thing. And it looked beautiful. It was really cool and it held up really well because this is not a thing that can exist in reality because of how arcane and magical it is. So it doesn't have to look real. And it, it was really cool looking. It felt very mystical and interesting and arcane in a way that added to the mystique. I think one last dig at the visuals of this film. So Alec Baldwin is just has his normal face when he's walking about as Lamont. However, when he goes into the shadow persona and has the hat and the red scarf covering the bottom half of his face, they also give him this prosthetic nose to, I guess, make him look much more like the comic book character. But it just looks real bad. They could have just not done that and been fine. And towards the end of the film, there's this one point where the scarf has been ripped off and we just see like 
Alec Baldwin there with like all the shadow makeup and then it kind of morphs back to his normal face. I guess he's like putting on this psychic facade to strike fear into these enemies and obfuscate his secret identity. Sure, that makes perfect sense. More superheroes should do that. The effects for it are just bad. The nose is way too large. Mm-hmm. Also, the nose becomes noticeably more crooked and the idea of it, the scary form is the one with the crooked nose is... Not the greatest. Yeah. Um, speaking of the greatest, though, uh, I like the antagonist a lot. I think he's a he's a fun character. There's a bit where he comes up and is like, Shiwan Khan, last descendant of Genghis Khan. You are naturally deeply honored. John Lone is hamming it up here. He knows what kind of movie this needs to be. Yeah. Some of the critical response at the time, they were not too keen on the villain, but this is exactly the sort of shit that we need. <laughs> on a meta level, I'm not sure if the character is great, but within the film, the, the character and the actor are having a good time. Yeah. Again, grain of salt, there's a lot of Orientalism and ickiness around that. Putting all that to the side, John Lone is having a great time here. <laughs> I also really like the way that the film ends rather than killing the major villain as most of these films would. Shiwan is injured with a broken piece of mirror is kind of like jabbed into his skull. He wakes up in a psych ward. He has the doctor come in and he tries to hypnotize him. (laughs) No, we won't have any of that, Mr. Khan. (laughs) Let's just have a look at those stitches, shall we? Stitches. You're finally allowed to see his full face now. Saved your Where life, the that's what. piece of mirror of course, hit him, we had a there's stitches section of the frontal like... lobe, but you'll never miss it, believe me. It's a part nobody ever uses. What? What? Unless you believe in telepathy. <laughs> and then later on, as the doctor is kind of knowingly walking out, it shows uh, one of the shadow agent rings on his hand. Which I'll admit is a tad horrifying to remove a part of this person's mind, but also I get it. He's using his powers for evil and taking away someone's evil powers is probably better than killing them. I don't know. I have complicated feelings about all that. I would put it as no worse than at the end of Last Airbender, what happens with the Fire Lord. Mm, That's fair. That's fair. Also, sorry if that spoils the ending for you, but I'm pretty sure the Statue of Limitations on that is gone. Yes. Margot's pretty good. So Margot is a low-level talent. She has some inherent psychic abilities, but she doesn't really use them that much. And over the course of the film, through being comrades with Alec Baldwin, she develops her powers a little bit. In fact, she is completely immune to the shadow attempting to implant ideas into her mind, which I'm actually really glad we got that scene because towards the beginning of the film, we see Alec Baldwin's playboy persona like wooing her for the evening. I couldn't tell. It's like, is Alec Baldwin like reading her mind or implanting ideas? is in there and then playing off of that Uh, and it seems more so that they kind of are literally on the same wavelength which definitely makes a lot of those scenes much less squicky. Alec Baldwin could definitely be in a very Kilgravey place with his powers Mm. if he wanted to. Luckily they never go there and he can't with this character and that's really good. Also her psychic abilities mean she can take a walk down his dreams and see a bit of his dark past and we get a bit of that without him having to exposit. There's also this amazing scene where she's stayed over at his house because she was in danger for reasons. She tries to be seductive in the morning. What did you dream? I was lying naked on the beach in the South Seas. And the tide was coming up over my toes. Hot and cool at the same time. What was yours? I dreamed I tore all the skin off my face and was somebody else underneath. 
You have problems. It's a delightful expectations aversion for her. Yes. It also is directly followed by a scene of, do you have anything to wear? My clothes are rather dirty from yesterday. And he has a closet full of women's clothes, even though he uh, lives alone. And he tries to play He's it off. He's going like, to uh, my Aunt Rose. Oh, really? Very fashionable gal, that Rose. Mm-hmm. Kept a figure, too. Ah, yeah. It is just her size. And it's it's very subtly hinting to the audience, like, this is all clothing from One Night Stands that he's brought home previously. Who left without their clothes, I guess. I fully believed it was his aunt's clothing because I'm very innocent and people usually take their clothes with them when they leave because we know we're not seeing each other again. That said, while Margot as a character is pretty fun, her acting doesn't always pan out. Yeah. There's a bit where I said, she's fine, but she's no Christy Swanson. Unfortunately, there were a lot of uh, comparisons to a character in The Phantom who kind of fits the same general character archetype who is much more compelling in that film. And honestly, I think that's a pretty good transition. Let's go ahead and move over to talking about The Phantom. Sure. So The Phantom, based on uh, Lee Fox comic from 1936 to now, uh, still going for... Wow, it's a lot of years. The Phantom tells the story of a superhero in the Indian, possibly African, it's a little unclear. I figured it was somewhere in the South Pacific. In the South Pacific region of the Bengala jungle, who is a crime fighter who is trying to stop the various wrongdoers in the area. People from the Sang Brotherhood manage to get their hands on a magic skull, and if they manage to get all three of them, explosions will happen with the skull. Great power and evil, all that jazz. They are working for an evil businessman named Xander Drax, who lives back in America. People around Xander Drax's social circle have started to piece together what he's doing, and Diana Palmer, who is functionally Evie from The Mummy, uh, goes to try to investigate in Bengala. However, she is accosted and captured by the Sky Pirates, led by Sala, and is rescued by the Phantom. The Phantom makes his way back to New York to confront Xander Drax and uncover his evil doings. Xander Drax gives his hands on another skull and uses the two of them to to find the location of the last one. They head to a remote uh, island and uh, confront the remnants of the Rick Kabai Seng in his pirate cave. Xander Drax manages to get his hands on all f- three skulls, and he and the Phantom have a beam struggle because the Phantom has the fourth skull and has had it the whole time. And then they all blow up, and they just leave the skulls there in the ocean, I guess. The Phantom proposes to Diana because he's only wants to tell one person about his secret identity, and she instead flies off in an airplane with Sala because, uh, lesbian undertones are strong in this movie. To be fair, the gay undertones were very strong in the shadow. We actually didn't talk about that at all. No, we didn't. <laughs> um, that that bit where the shadow uh, drops a guy off a building and slams him into a thing and then says, Next time you get to be on top. Which raises questions that we are not going to get to answer because we are going to explore the Phantom right now. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, it is based on a 1963 comic that is still going. It gained a lot of popularity in World War II because... It was a thing you could pass out to soldiers. Norway was a big hit for it because of the resistance fighters use uh, phantom as a code word. So there's just some kismet there. And a lot of places really glommed onto this story and it found a foothold. There's a lot of different adaptions. Like we've had a few different movies, a few cartoons. There's a sci-fi miniseries in 2010 that I'd never heard of until I was looking it up. So <laughs> you can see how well that did. This movie was in production for a while and Joe Dante, one of the scriptwriters, wrote a script as a comedy and then was fired from the project and they didn't realize it was supposed to be a comedy. Oh, that explains a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there were scenes that were supposed to be comedic that were played entirely straight. 
And I think it's better for it, honestly. This film works because everyone is 100% committed to this idea of it being exactly what it's supposed to be. Including Billy Zane, who plays the Phantom, who was a fan of the comic books and put in a lot of effort in analyzing the character's movements in the comic panels to like get the movement of the character right, which is really cool. Billy Zane put in a lot of body work in this film, and there's a bit where he's just like shirtless in a library and I was like, hmm, hmm, he can commandeer my biplane anytime he wants. <laughs> As with the shadow, the phantom here has some uh, pacing issues towards the front of the film, but they get sorted out in time. I think it's a little bit better. The open credits are very clearly meant to be a montage, and it's like, don't worry about it. It's just like that. This is just to get you caught up. And that's fine. I just wish it wasn't followed by the very slow ascent of these treasure hunters going and looking for one of the skulls. There's some really good scenes, like Quill is holding the map that they're following upside down, and the only one who realizes it is this uh, small boy that they have as a translator. Yeah, and those sequences are fine, but a lot of those characters are going to wind up dead in the next 20 minutes, so they don't really matter. We don't need to develop them. Yeah, and it feels like we're just going to give the Cliff Notes version of this origin story so we can like get to the meat and action of the film, and then it's this very slow few scenes until we actually get to see the Phantom fighting them. It felt like a wasted opportunity. Yeah, and some of the scenes that were cut from this film were scenes of the Phantom and Diane becoming a couple, and I kind of wish we'd traded out some of those for these opening scenes. There was also a scene of the Phantom fighting a giant snake, and they actually went back to do reshoots and other scenes, one of which was the Phantom fighting a lion, and that unfortunately got cut from the film too. I can see where it would have happened, probably during the bit where he's escaping through a zoo. I don't think we needed that. That was a reasonable cut. Yeah. Yeah. The film has some pacing issues. And also, much like The Shadow, um, there's problematic race stuff. Don't want to get too far into it. It doesn't bother me as much because the main antagonists are white people. Yeah. Um, we, we just have uh, the great Kabai Seng, who is an Asian person, but he's a somewhat background character who only shows up yeah. towards the end. Yeah. And you have a little bit of uh, white saviorism with the Phantom protecting the mm. indigenous peoples of Bengala. But on the other hand, the Phantom is also specifically trying to get the skulls together to return them to the tribe that they originally belong to. There's this one scene where Billy Zane just cracks open some glass at the museum to grab the skull because, like, this doesn't belong here. It needs to go back. It doesn't belong <laughs> in a museum. <laughs> There's a lot to unpack with all that. That's the whole thing. Yeah. Mixed bag at best. Mm -hmm. But instead of unpacking that, let's unpack the costume, which does not quite work. Yeah. Like, unfortunately, the Phantom's costume is very of its time. It's pretty much just a purple leotard with a cowl and then a black gun belt. Mm -hmm. They've tried to stylize it a little bit, and there's like these vague skull motifs on the leotard that Billy Zane's wearing, but it's still just this bit of purple spandex. They do a good job using the buckle of the belt, which is a triangle with a skull in it, to cover Billy Zane's um, phantom zone. A good choice, but the smoothness of the head just looks odd, and you need something to break up those lines. Yeah, there's also this weird like widow's peak aspect to it on the very front and i think it would have been better without i think it worked better if anybody else in the movie had that kind of thing but it's just him everyone else just like indiana jones characters yeah well and i guess the pirates but they dress like pirates so it's fine yeah i understand why they would be hesitant to redesign the costume but I think it would have gone a long way to making this movie better. Mm -hmm. And I know it can be done. I mean, the costume for The Flash is not dissimilar, and they do a really good job of making that work on the CW show. And even to a certain extent on the DCW, in the 
what's it called? The, the expanded DC universe. The DCEU. In the Justice League with Ezra Miller. Silicon-based quartz sand fabric. Abrasion resistant? Heat resistant? Uh, yeah, I do competitive ice dancing. It's what they use on the space shuttle to prevent it from burning up on re-entry. I do very competitive ice dancing. While the costume is odd, Billy Zane is having a great time with this, so I think it kind of helps. Oh yeah, Billy Zane is having a great time, and he is putting all of his effort into this character. And the Phantom and Kit just work. It's this very charming individual. The way he is interacting with a lot of the women of the cast never feels icky at all, even though he comes off as like very charming and very suave. How does he manage to get away? Diana did all the work, actually. Not only is he mysterious, he's modest, too. Right, but he doesn't feel predatory. Yes. A reason I really like the way he acts is he acts like someone who's incredibly confident, and the mythology around him is that he's immortal, he can't be killed, when really he's just a legacy character, passes on father to son. But I genuinely thought that he was immortal because he acted so confident in everything he did that I assumed that nothing could touch him. That was a really good acting choice. Yeah. It worked really well together. Yeah, and the way he is suave is like inviting. It's like, if you're interested, I'm right here. Mm -hmm. And it works. Like, there's a lot of sexiness going on in this film, but it never feels icky. He never feels intimidated by his opposite number, Diana, being competent. Like, there's a bit where they have the upper hand on Sala, the Sky Pirates, and the fans are like, Tie her up. Diana just punches her out. <laughs> or don't. It's fine. <laughs> Which is how I'm going to segue to Diana, who I love. She's wonderful. She's so good. Yeah. Diana here is played by Christy Swanson who some of you may know from the 1992's Buffy the Vampire Slayer film mm -hmm. prior to the television show. I'm the chosen one, and I choose to be shopping. And she does not give a fuck. Like, she's... I mentioned that she's kind of like the Evie of this uh, movie, so she's this sort of brave, adventurous gal who's going off on daring dues. Like, less Evie from the very beginning of the Mummy film and more like Evie from The Mummy Returns. Right. I also put in a little bit of Amelia Earhart in there. Yeah, she's unbothered by the return of her childhood sweetheart. Kit was college sweethearts with her before he went off to be the Phantom, and he's clearly still into her. I've thought a lot about you since then, Diana. I thought about you too, Kit. Then I stopped and I went on with my life. <laughs> yes, yes. Awesome. And then opposite of her, we have Catherine Zeta-Jones as Sala, who is a commander of a team of all-female sky pirates. Where is that movie? <laughs> The fact that they're all female leads to some great moments of the film. Like, at one point when the Phantom is getting onto a ship to try and rescue Diana from them, he doesn't realize that all these women are, like, the bad guys. So he accidentally, like, walks into their shower room. They all scream and he starts to apologize. And then they pull guns on him. <laughs> Also, it plays into some of Salah's motivations that bothered me at first, but I came around to. In Act 2, Salah has kind of abandoned the Sky Pirates to work with Xander Drax and be part of his evil plan. But when that evil plan leads to Xander Drax kind of implying that he's okay with this pirate king doing sexual assaults at Diana, Salah kicks the guy in the junk and then is like, hey Diana, let's stick together. And her demeanor changes and that's kind of where she swaps very quickly from villain to hero. And I feel like there's a subtle character arc of her having this feminist agenda that she abandons and realizes, oh right, men are awful. I'm going to go back to what I was doing before. And I'm kind of into it. Also, she also has a great bit of self-confidence where uh, she deduces that the Phantom is in love with Diana. I think he's in love with her. Oh, really? Why do you say that? Because he could have had me, but he picked her. 
we've been talking about all these characters. Let's talk about Xander Drax. Oh, God. Use car salesman with doom skills. Yeah. So, Treat Williams plays Xander Drax. He's a prolific character actor. You've probably seen him in something. He has this carnival barker tone that is just so perfect on this mid-30s venture capitalist. Mm. He is just being campy as hell. And honestly, this would not work if they had, like, a serious character or someone trying to, like, take this as, like, a, a dark, tormented person. No. There's a number of scenes where Drax is offing his underlings because they have failed him in one way. And it's never simple, like, shooting him with a gun. There's this... There's this... I forgot about that! <laughs> there's this library guy that uh, Xander's been relying on to make sure that things that he's been studying, researching, stay under wraps. And they have not. So he invites him into his office to talk about it. And he's like, oh, so like, are you, are you sure none of my thing's getting out? And he's like, yes, I'm, I'm very sure, Dr. Rex. Like, okay, like, good to know. And he moves him over to this microscope that he had been messing with before he entered. You know, he looks in and he, he focuses the thing. And it's just a piece of paper that says liar on it. And then blades come up into the eye holes of the microscope to kill him. <laughs> or at one point, one of the uh, criminal bosses that are working under him is like, I don't want to get involved in this dark power looking for skulls thing. Uh, I just do crime. <laughs> and he's trying to bow out. And he's like, well, I'm sorry you feel that way. Go ahead and see yourself out. He's got his hand on the door and then Drax just grabs a spear off the wall and chucks it at him. <laughs> And everyone else in the boardroom is like, so skulls, tell us more. <laughs> and there's Quill. Quill killed the previous Phantom and is really freaked out that the Phantom is still walking around. He keeps mentioning, uh, like, you can't kill him. I killed him. <laughs> he's been waiting for everybody else to freak out about the fact that Phantom is immortal and no one is freaking out about this. And he's like, <laughs> he grows more and more desperate as the film goes on. Mm -hmm. It's very good. And... He's this very great bungling underling of a, like, lieutenant. But he still did manage to kill the Phantom's dad, so there's that. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One thing I will say, I think some of the fumbling points that this film has, a lot of the stunt work is pretty hokey. <laughs> yeah. A lot of the fight scenes are very, very clearly staged. There's a few bits, usually when it's Billy Sane and somebody else who has actually practiced a fight. It's not too bad, but when it's just mooks fighting some of the secondary characters, the fights are very bad. Yeah. During the film, I kept comparing it to like Hercules Legendary Journeys. We're on that level of competency and effects work. A lot of the stunts, like jumping off of the plane and things like that, it's all practical effects. So it's impressive what they're doing, but the way that they're filming it and framing it, it feels very of its time. It reminds me a lot of those stunt shows that you'd see at like Disney World. Mm -hmm. And they built a really impressive set for the Skull Cave and the other Skull Cave, but you can tell when you go from shooting on location to shooting on a soundstage. Mm -hmm. I will say that the location scouting that they had, whoever did that, excellent work. A lot of the panning shots and the shots of like riding a horse along the beach, great. They look beautiful. Yeah. I think the Phantom's Skull Cave lair works. No smoking in the Skull Cave. 
but the hideout for the Sang of Brotherhood is very hokey looking. Like, it looks like a ride at an amusement park. Yeah. Got that gate coming down that um, some theater kids off stage are really proud of. Yeah, and like a six inch moat with a couple of fake sharks circling. <laughs> oh, those poor, poor sharks. Yeah, I think one of the other big flaws of this film is the editing is a little choppy. Feels like they're being very economical. <laughs> Yeah. And like we said, there were some scenes that did not make it, so it might have honestly been that thing where they cut down a film to make more showings. Unfortunately, this did not do very well at the box office for a number of reasons. Yeah, it cost $45 million to make and made $14 million. It also opened up against Mission Impossible and Dragonheart. Yeah, the first Mission Impossible came out two weeks before this and was a huge success. Uh, a week before this, the first Dragonheart film came out. And then the same week that this premiered, The Rock, not like Dwayne The Rock Johnson, but the Michael Bay film starring Nicolas Cage and Sean Connery. It didn't really have a hope. I mean, The Rock is kind of an of time thing, but Mission Impossible and Dragonheart would go on to spawn successful franchises that are still running today. The Phantom did not. Yeah. And like The Rock is still a Michael Bay film. Like the action sequences being shot there are still really good. I Honestly, The Rock is probably my favorite Michael Bay film. Mm, sure. It's ridiculous the plot is terrible but i know that going <laughs> i don't expect a lot right whereas the phantom feels like an indiana jones movie which you know those are fun two and a half of them are good but they came out you know 10 years before the phantom did and if you look like a thing from 10 years ago that's not gonna draw on audiences when the other options yeah. are tom cruise and a dragon and nicholas cage i guess there were a lot of pulp movies coming out in this era, and nothing really stuck, unfortunately. Hollywood audiences really wouldn't care about pulp again until the first Mummy film came out just a few years later. And I'm not even sure that they really care about pulp. I think it's more that every once in a while there's a really good pulp movie that audiences like, but they don't like it necessarily for the pulp. They like it for other things around it. The Mummy is good, but I think people glom onto the characters more than the pulpiness. You're wondering... What is a place like me doing in a girl like this? And yeah. parts of the Caribbean is good, but I think people glom onto the music and the spectacle more than the pulpiness. Yeah, we're, we're talking about why The Phantom did not do well. Like, it tanked the box office. The Shadow was in a similar boat. It at least made its budget back but not more. It cost $40 million to make. It made $48 million. It also had some stiff competition. It opened one week after... And Lion King not only beat the, at the time, record for best opening weekend for an animated film, it had the best opening weekend of all films in 1994. These films didn't really have a chance to do well, just they just happened to be stacked up in the wrong places, which is a pity. I kind of wish these had been on the bracket. I would have enjoyed watching them once or twice more. Mm -hmm. Like, these are very rewatchable. Yeah. These are very much like popcorn in your friends' movies. Yeah. And, like, the thing is, both of these films did incredibly well on uh, home video release. The Phantom kind of became this cult classic when it was released on home video. And, like I said, I've never owned a DVD of The Shadow. The only time I've watched this film is when it's on TV. And growing up, I watched it probably once a year. Sometimes twice. You were quoting bits of it like, during the movie. <laughs> 
You yeah. were like Mike Knoll last week with <laughs> League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Yeah. This is one of those films where if my dad saw it was on, he was watching it. Whereas I'd never seen either of them before, and I'm kind of sad. I wish I'd grown up having these in my cultural memory, because The Phantom is a pleasant, doofy movie that I kind of want to revisit at least once every few years. These are two of the films that I have to thank for my like love of Pulp Fiction in all its variety of forms. Yeah, this really makes me want to play Spirit of the Century. Mm-hmm. And admittedly, they don't manage to shed the more problematic aspects of their source material, but they do manage to dodge some of them. In The Phantom, they refer to him as uh, the ghost who walks and the man who can't die, which are some of his comic nicknames, but they managed to dodge the nickname Guardian of the Eastern Dark. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. Not great. Not great. I think both of these do as well as we could have hoped for in the early 90s. That is not to say that they do well, but probably better than I would expect from something coming out of that era. Sure. I mean, we've been praising the mummy constantly throughout this whole thing, and that's not always great about that kind of thing either. So, yeah. yeah. Um, It seems like there's movement towards trying to bring the Phantom back again. So hopefully, if that comes around, they'll be able to navigate that better. I think there's definitely opportunity with any of these kind of things to look at them through a post-colonial eye and do a good job of interrogating that legacy while still creating a fun pulpy action narrative. Mm -hmm. These are beloved characters that lots and lots of people grew up with or that people remember that their parents being really into and they instilled that same love into them. Like, The Shadows had a number of films... Like, most of them were, like, shorts or back in the height of their popularity during the 30s and 40s. Back in the early 2000s, there was talk of Sam Raimi making a shadow film. But unfortunately, he couldn't get the rights to either The Shadow of the Phantom or The Batman, so he wound up making Darkman, which is all three of those movies, really. Yeah, kind of. I think at some point we're probably going to see some of these characters back on screen again. Honestly, someone get both the rights to do a two-hour animated thing like The Shadow versus The Phantom. That would be really fun. Yeah, honestly, if Warner Brothers wanted to pad out some of their DC animated stuff with things like this. Yeah, and that's it. That's our comics bracket. We can never watch comic movies again. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed this bracket. I, I was looking forward to it when I came up with the idea, and specifically looking at these, most of them kind of forgotten comic book films, especially in the current zeitgeist of the MCU and whatever DC's doing. <laughs> whatever DC's doing. Uh, so I'm glad we got to highlight some of the gems that have come and gone and are out of the current conversation. We did unfortunately have to sit through some very awful stinkers. Yeah. What's up next week in next bracket? So, our next project is going to be a bracket of sports films. Hmm. Probably the Monday after this goes up, I will have a uh, post about the bracketeering for our next project and how we decided on which films made it on and we should also at that point have the initial full uh, image for the bracket so if you'd like to make your best guesses before we start putting up episodes be our guests it will again be a 16 film bracket 32 is very long we did it for disney there may be a point where something is important enough that we'll do it again but i think we're going to be sticking with 16 for the foreseeable future yeah 
I don't think I want to do another 32. That was that was grueling. But to kick it off next week, we are going to be getting into Rocky versus Eddie the Eagle. So if you want to, make sure to listen to that as soon as it goes live or tell your friends about our new project. Get them involved right at the beginning. You'll know when that episode goes live if you follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Podbean, or Spotify. But until then, this has been the Cartoonist Pausing Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.